days that define your story beyond your life. Like the day they arrived. Signs of what might be called first contact. The objects measure at least... I'm Colonel G.T. Webber from the Intelligence. Pack your bags. You're at the top of everyone's list when it comes to translations. Priority one. What do they want? Where are they from? You'll be reporting to me, but you'll be working with him when you're in the show. That's what they call him, the UFO. Who's being carted off in the medevac? Not everyone is wired for what you're about to do. So what do they look like? You'll see soon enough. Every 18 hours, a door opens up. That's where we go in. show about enjoying the cinematic arts. That includes blockbusters, epic classics, thought-provoking sci-fi dramas, and pretty much anything else that catches our fancy. I'm Joe. I'll be the lingual specialist on this cinematic journey. And joining me today is our special guests, Abbott and Costello. I mean, Gene Goswer and Clark Douglas. How are you doing, guys? Very well. Good. Good to be here. It is a pleasure to have you back, Gene. And also with us for the first time is my good old friend, Clark Douglas, who was a guest a handful of times on Movie Bite. So, welcome to the new show, Clark. Everything is new and spiffy on this pl- it, over here. It's uh, we streamlined the show. We skip the news section. We just get right down to the business with the movie reviews. Yeah, I see. Uh, it's a very spare, modern design in here, and there are no streaks on the windows, and it looks nice. <laughs> yeah, a new sound system. Everything yeah. is so spiffy. I love it. <laughs> Gina, you uh, were with us for two superhero adventures. This is the first time we're going to move over into sci-fi land. So Indeed. I thought that you would be good for the mission. Absolutely. I'm, I'm looking forward to getting into discussion on this. This film just really surprised me, gentlemen, because I, I was not expecting something to uh, completely clear the slate and make up for something like Independence Day's sequel earlier mm. this year. This film really does that for me. That that was earlier this year, right? Or was it last year that I just don't know. I don't even care. Independence Day's sequel really didn't get a blip out of me. It was earlier this year. I I, I didn't see it. Um, I felt its dark presence. (laughs) It was was miserable and Rotten Tomatoes a few days while it was there. Yeah, You are forgiven for forgetting about it. I only saw it a a week or so ago on, uh, on rental. 
And yeah, very, very forgettable. And this film is anything but forgettable because it's actually a really good story and not one that necessarily every, you know, person will rush out to watch over the Thanksgiving holidays or as we move into the Christmas holiday season, but it's still a great film and people that are watching it are telling me for the most part that they love it and they want to see it twice. Uh, maybe even in the theater. So I wasn't expecting that. I liked it, but uh, the response has been really good. And Gene, how did you feel about it? Did you think that you should go back to see it in theaters? I do have plans to see it again. Actually, a friend will be visiting from uh, out of town and uh, we've already kind of made soft plans to go check it out. And, uh, and I'm all in for that. I'd love to see this again. I want to, um, I want to hear a lot of the dialogue again and uh, pay a little more attention to some of the camera work being done. Um, knowing the whole story now, I want to see some of those some of those little clues that they might have dropped in uh, throughout the story. So I'm really looking forward to seeing it again in the theater. Clark, what was your impression? Um, th- this movie really kind of floored me, honestly. Uh, it was it was completely absorbing and engaging uh, the whole way through, but I I wasn't quite prepared for the uh, emotional impact the closing moments of the movie had on me. Um, it it really just kind of knocked me out, and uh, a great piece of science fiction. I think uh, very much a a sort of what you might call a hard sci fi movie in contrast to something like you know Independence Day. Um, but uh and definitely not you know for everyone this is this is very much a kind of meditative slow burn movie a sort of sci-fi film in the close encounters vein where it's all building to a defining moment but um yeah a, a superb piece of filmmaking there was a couple of times watching the film i wondered if i would fall asleep or if my sister was falling asleep who was watching it with me and no, we both made it all the way through. There was just a couple of lulls there where I was thinking, is it going to, is it going to pick things up here in the middle? But mm-hmm. it really does. And it pays off in the end if you can stick it through the second half of act two. But I don't think you're going to have that problem as long as you go into it knowing that there is more to this movie than meets the eye. The first act, it could go either way, but it gets a lot of steam as it moves forward. Yes. So, Gene, uh, go ahead and tell us a little bit about the film. Yeah, if we haven't said it already or if you haven't caught on, we're talking about Arrival. This is a 2016 American science fiction film written by Eric Heisserer. Hopefully I'm pronouncing that correctly. Uh, This is based on a short story called Story of Your Life by Ted Chiang. Uh, A linguist is recruited by the military to assist in translating alien communications. The film received critical acclaim and praise for its story, sustained intense and suspenseful atmosphere, and Amy Adams' performance as well. Very good there. Uh, This was released on November 11th this year, directed by Denise Villeneuve, and a production budget of $47 million, and thus far it's making just a hair under $56 million now in the middle of its uh, second week now. It is released worldwide, and it's doing much better in the U.S., but I think it's going to, it's going to work really well for all audiences. One of the great themes of the film has been the, the aspects that involve multiple countries, and it involves mm-hmm. China. You, you see glimpses of things going on in Australia and the Middle East, and they keep hopping back and forth. 
though the majority of the stories happening in Montana. And I think that that world, that global appeal is something that is great. It is a film about the, the, uh, the unification and the, uh, the differences be- uh, between alliances around the world. And this is definitely something that I think the mainstream can appreciate today around the world because it, it is a good reflection of the temperament of different countries. Mm-hmm. And I think that it is also gracious towards all the different countries and uh, respecting the, the possibilities within this just a uh, what if scenario. Um, and so, yeah, I, I can see how this will continue to do well. I don't think it's done in the box office. I think it could easily make several more million Clark. Um, do you have any kind of gauge on that? What do you think about the box office results? Uh, I do think it's the sort of film that's going to continue playing pretty well over the next few weeks because it does strike me as the sort of movie that's going to generate good word of mouth and uh, inspire people to tell their friends to go out and see it or maybe go back and see it again. Mm -hmm. Um, Obviously, this isn't, you know, massive crowd-pleasing blockbuster material, but uh, it's doing very well for the budget that it has and for, uh, I think, the expectations that it had. And uh, yeah, I, I expect it's it's not only going to continue doing well now, but going to be a film that uh, holds up very well over time. Already, I can say that this film feels like it's a timeless sci-fi classic, a modern classic. Well, yeah, yeah, and I mean it, that that's always easier to say, you know, when you're when you're looking back at it, because I think it's also a movie uh, of its time in a lot of ways too. It it really kind of reflects especially earlier on um, some of the anxieties and specific tensions of the world that we're living in at the moment. Mm-hmm. Um, and I'll, I'll be curious, you know, in the future to see whether it still feels like the world we're living in at that point. But um, you know, that that's the kind of thing that uh, you tend to notice, I guess, later on when you go back to something, but, but, but yes, it is a, a, a well-made film and a, and a sort of, classical sense and i do think it'll hold up very well so clark who is in this film and can you tell us something about the music what do you know about the composer and the cast okay well let's start with the cast uh amy adams plays the lead role of dr louise banks a linguist adams a wonderful actress who's reliably excellent in just about everything she appears in but particularly great here very Uh, versatile yeah yes Yes. Uh, Jeremy Renner plays Ian Donnelly, a military astrophysicist, a uh, key supporting character and essentially Adam's uh, partner and collaboration in this movie. Uh, Forrest Whitaker plays Colonel Weber, a senior U.S. military officer. Michael Stuhlbarg, who was so uh, wonderful in the Coen Brothers film A Serious Man a few years ago, uh, pops up as Agent Halpern here. Uh, C. Ma has a couple of nice scenes as the Chinese General Shang, and Mark O'Brien plays Captain Marks. Uh, the composer is Johan Johansson. Uh, he's a relatively newish composer. He's won acclaim in recent years for his score for uh, The Theory of Everything, the Stephen Hawking biopic. <laughs> and he also won some acclaim for his very tense atmospheric work on the movie Sicario, which was directed Mm. by uh, Mr. Villanueva, who directed this as well. So uh, a regular collaborator of his, I I think I'll have to double check this. I think he also scored prisoners 
uh, that the same gentleman directed. So um, they have a bit of a thing going. And how did you like the music? I didn't notice it in the film. Um, I, I, I did, but I think that's partially because uh, I had been listening to the soundtrack a little bit in advance. Um, now, one thing that's important to note, probably the most distinctive and memorable piece of music that's in the movie wasn't actually written by uh, Mr. Johansson. There's a piece by Max Richter, and I forget the name of the piece. I don't know right off the top of my head, but the music that you hear at the very beginning and the very end of the movie, and then also once in the middle in a fairly emotional moment, um, is um, a Max Richter piece, and everything else is score by Johan Johansson. But uh, most of the score was uh, very atmospheric, very experimental, Um there, there were portions of it that uh, I think effectively capture the kind of enigmatically otherworldly sound that this movie demanded. Um, there's a lot of uncertainty in the film as a whole. Uh, you, you don't really know what the aliens want, why they're there, uh, what they're trying to get from humanity, what they're re- anything really. And that uncertainty I think is well reflected in the score, which, which isn't a particularly melodic or thrilling listen on its own, but works quite well in the movie. Mm-hmm. So I'm ready to dive into the general discussion. I really enjoy this film. I didn't know much about it before seeing it. I think I probably caught the trailer once several months ago in theaters watching something else. And I really liked the faces I saw. Of course, I'm a Jeremy Renner fan and Amy Adams fan. And I like the supporting cast. And it's difficult to really gauge something from the trailer unless you're seeing what the critics have to say from their various reviews. But even then, it's really just forecasting the weather. You really don't know until it's officially released and you're getting a better idea of what the general audience is saying and what you hear from friends. So I waited Till the last minute and <laughs> then when we decided to watch this film for review i was hearing from a lot of people that they were really enjoying it so my expectations were raised a little bit going into the theater just knowing that it was doing it for my friends and when i settled into the chair i i really didn't know what i was getting into and then some of the things they introduced in the first act were uh very novel that caught my attention I thought it was more creative than many sci-fi stories are. I didn't know if it was going to develop emotionally like it ended up developing, but I knew I liked how much seeming originality there was just brought into the beginning so that it felt like a fresh take on something that has been done many times over. This is not just action packed to try and create artificial momentum and the, the screenplay is fresh It's also well paced. And I was noticing that just at the very beginning that it was thought provoking. It was an introverted sort of film, one where I think that emotionally it had a great amount of depth for you to dive into just at the get go. And uh, so, so for those reasons, it was incredibly fresh and it didn't feel like just a just it doesn't feel at all like a flick. It feels like a a great work of storytelling. Yeah. So those were my first impressions and I really didn't know what I was getting into, but I'm very glad that I saw it when I did. Gene, what did you think of it? What did you know going into this film? Well, this one was on my watch list, uh, probably back in September. Uh, we sort of looked forward to some of the Oscar season movies coming out and, 
and uh, I I caught a glimpse of this one. I watched the trailer, and uh, you know you see Amy Adams and you see aliens, and I remembered the last time Amy Amy Adams was with an alien. It was a pretty big blockbuster, so I figured this had a good shot. Um, I learned that this was directed by uh, Villeneuve, and I recalled really enjoying Sicario. Um, and I heard a lot of really decent things about Prisoners. Not spectacular, but but pretty solid. So um, interesting actors, uh, an interesting synopsis, um, good experience on my end from the director. Uh, you know, I'm in. Um, yeah, I, I was looking forward to this one uh, at least a couple months ago. And Clark, what did you know going into it? You said you already were familiar with the soundtrack. Uh, well, I, I was familiar with the soundtrack like a, a couple days before I saw it. I was just browsing the uh, the new music section on the streaming service mm-hmm. I've subscribed to and uh, came across it and decided to listen to it. So, you know, I, it wasn't anything way out in advance, but my knowledge was basically similar to Gene's. Um, I had seen Sicario, was very impressed with that and uh, was eager to see more from that director. Um I had seen the trailer a couple of months ago, and it looked very intriguing. Uh, I'm always up for a good science fiction film, um, and uh, liked the cast, liked uh, a lot of what I was hearing about it. And uh, the movie was playing on the film festival circuit one or two months ago, and at that time, I was hearing some impressive buzz from people who had seen it. So, uh, yeah, yeah this, this is one I'd, I'd definitely been anticipating for a while. Does it seem to you, Clark, that it was a film that used the relatively low budget very well? It's it didn't feel like there were any loose ends to me, and it is a low budget for sci-fi these days, right? It is, uh, but but they use it in uh, very smart ways. I think they they mostly use the budget to convincingly uh, create the sort of otherworldly elements that are in the film and to, to make those as credible as possible, uh, as opposed to, you know, a lot of big budget movies use it in the service of gigantic action sequences. And there's not really anything like that here. Um, it's mostly just design stuff. Um, but yeah, a, a very impressive looking movie and there's nothing that looks like, uh, you know, I think it absolutely told the story it wanted to tell and there's nothing that feels like, the corner cutting you sometimes get in um, lower budget science fiction films where you feel like they have to kind of, you know, sort of visually hint at something rather than actually show it for, for budget reasons. Uh, you never got that sense here. These these middle of the road in terms of the budget um, blockbusters are becoming more and more rare. It seems like the highly critically acclaimed movies are like in the 10 to $20 million budget range and, and they're more independently released. And then you've got your summer, summer blockbusters, which are, you know, 90 million plus, you know, getting into 200 million sometimes because they're able to make that return uh, usually. And so these, this middle of the road, which is now like 30, 50 million or so, um, is becoming, it seems like more and more rare. So it's nice to see Villeneuve be able to kind of cash in on some of the, um, some of the credit that he's earned with things like Sicario and, uh, prisoners and be able to, to use a budget like this in a way, in a sci-fi film that is not, it's not like you're watching the trailer and, 
things are exploding and things are chasing and things are this and that, like you might expect in a lot of sci-fi films. Um, it really just asks you to sink into the scenes and not be blown away by them. And I think that was a really effective use of the budget, just like Clark was saying. Yeah, I, I agree. It's it's definitely nice to see something in this uh, budget range out there. And as you say, those are disappearing. Typically, you're going to see something more like, um, I don't know if either of you saw Midnight Special earlier yes. this year, which is a, a really good movie, but uh, a movie, I think, somewhere between the 10 and $20 million range yep. budget wise. And it, it feels like it, you know, uh, but uh, a, a, a great piece of filmmaking, but it obviously had certain financial limitations in place. Sure. So as it started to pick up steam by the end of act one, were y'all expecting the the depths and the quality to surprise you a couple of times with the turns that they present by the end of the film? Mm, uh, only moderately. I would say surprised is the wrong word. Um, I would say pleased because I, I kind of assumed that it would have to have some depth because of how it was marketed. You know, we just kind of talked about you don't have these big explosions or anything in the trailers. You don't have this, this sense that this is an alien attack movie. Um, they kind of maybe tease that a little bit, but you don't, from the visuals, you get none of that. So to me, I assumed it was going to be kind of a thinking man's sci-fi film. So when it comes, when it comes to depth or anything like that, I wasn't surprised that they were going for that. It was more of a question of, is it going to work? Is it going to, um, engage my emotions effectively? Am I going to be able to find some, uh, some characters or a particular storyline that I can attach myself to that even despite you know, this world of aliens now that I'm going to be able to buy into realistically. So I think surprise is the wrong word. I, I, I assumed it would be um, pretty deep, um, but I, I was certainly pleased with with where they went with it. And, you know, it's interesting you mentioned this being a, sort of a thinking man's science fiction film. And uh, w- one of the things that was intriguing to me was that it is a, a very sort of cerebral sci-fi movie, but with this more kind of conventional sci-fi B-movie like threatening to break out at any moment. <laughs> and and that like adds to the tension of the film because you have essentially the Forrest Whitaker character and some of these generals around the globe and yeah, these uh, pe- people who are, are, are sort of itching to nudge this into some sort of grand conflict with the aliens, you know, or, or, or take dumber, more aggressive action. Yeah. And so in, in a sense, you know, Amy Adams character is kind of racing against the clock, trying to make her case for the more methodical, thoughtful approach before that dumber science fiction movie is allowed to emerge <laughs> and overtake the narrative. Yeah. Um, and, uh, yeah, very, very, uh, well done there, I thought. Yeah, you you could almost see, you, you bringing that up makes me think of how it could happen. You could almost see Forrest Whitaker making some grand speech, you know, uh, how we have to protect ourselves. We have to defend this world kind of thing. Right. Uh, yeah, that's, that's a really good point. And then her bringing the kind of brevity into it uh, is, is a good contrast to that, that possibility anyway. Yeah. I liked how in the first act they established their dependency on lingual experts that that Louise is able to bring to the party there in Montana trying to communicate with the aliens. Mm-hmm. 
And uh, something we haven't really talked a lot about the details from scene by scene in the story. But if you haven't seen it, we're we're trying to avoid spoilers here for a few more minutes. Yeah. So don't turn don't turn off the podcast <laughs> just yet. Uh, we'll we'll sound a spoiler alert when we get there. Uh, but there in the beginning, they just explain how are they able to communicate with the aliens. Um, will you see the aliens there at the beginning of the film? Uh, what is a face-to-face encounter like? And they go ahead and show it. They get past those issues. Will they show the aliens? Yes. Will they have face-to-face contact and try to communicate? Yes. Is it a hostile face-off? Well, not really. And then beyond that, I think that that is what kind of stuns a lot of people, the characters in the story, they're expecting the stereotypical fashion of, well, where are the guns? Right. Where are the vicious, gnarly teeth? Where are the ugly eyes? Where are the things that are supposed to frighten us into drawing our weapons and blowing up you know, space vessels and things like that? But uh, it, it's, it's, it'd be very impractical to try and blow up these monolithic you know, space-traveling aliens' vehicles just uh, yeah. huge vessels, and it'd be hard to imagine exactly how do you take it out. There's there's no visible force fields or shields up, but they're able to manipulate gravity inside of these things. They hover over the ground with ease, and they're really just at the aliens' mercy and good graces to be welcomed into the house to meet face to face and try to communicate and. One of those things I really liked about these aliens is that they never they never really talk. You hear their you hear their sounds, mm-hmm. and it sounds kind of like whales or other sea creature life underwater, where it, it sounds like a lot of uh, echoes and growls and uh, groans in the deep. But then they communicate with their hands. Another uh, sort of different uh, original spin on. The fact that a lot of this film only works because you have a language expert at the center of communicating with the aliens. So then how do you make that interesting for the lingual expert? Well, she has to see something that is novel and original to her to, to deepen her understanding and appreciation of language. Already, she has proven at the get-go that she is very familiar with the world's languages. She understands how they tick. She understands how the human race thinks through language. And she is a a teacher at university. Mm -hmm. But then here she's presented with very novel ideas from the aliens. And that was one of the first pleasant surprises was that it, it didn't follow the, the stereotypical tropes of a face-to-face meetup with aliens yeah, no, it didn't. Um, but I, I do think it still kept the suspense there so that you were still wondering at their intentions even after an extended period of time where it, it seemed clear that they weren't going to attack or something. Right. Um, the, 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 the aliens are very enigmatic. Like uh, They don't really seem like a threat. You never really feel like uh, they're about to unleash hell on humanity at any given moment. But no. uh they they do remain a mystery and uh the longer uh the, the more time that passes without humanity coming to an understanding of what they want the more tense and uncertain uh these various countries begin to get and so you know 
this isn't really a new theme for science fiction, but the the sort of biggest threat in the movie is humanity's own insecurity and fearfulness and yeah. rush to judgment. And, uh, y- you know, uh, it, it's fighting against that. Uh, that's Louise's sort of biggest and most pressing task. So then the film gets into something I think is a little spoilerific. So before we talk about that, uh, any last remarks concerning act one and setting the stage with act two and, and sort of the, um, the issue of flashbacks and how, or should I say, other scenes that explain Amy and her, uh, her like, uh, what do you call story within story uh-huh. that has nothing to do with uh, the alien conflict? Well, I, I think that uh, one thing I was struck by, especially with the first half of the movie, is the way it allows the uh, uncertainty of the story to kind of marinate and for you to really feel that. It never rushes anything. And there are times where it's almost... Uh, remarkably methodical in the way it goes about sort of slowly letting the process of getting to the show yeah. <laughs> uh, unfold, you know, and uh, it understands that the, the audience has a lot that they're going to be wrestling with in their own mind and a lot of questions they're going to be asking. They're going to be filling in a lot of blanks on their own. Yeah. So it, it moves at this kind of, uh, you know, methodical pace and lets those questions sort of wander around in your mind before you actually get where we're going. I think, you know, a lesser film might've rushed through that stuff, but this one doesn't. And, uh, you know, the, the, the flashbacks and everything with Amy Adams don't seem, didn't seem particularly like out of place or anything to me because it's my first impression of them was that, you know, it was essentially just, uh, character development and giving us a sense of who she is as a person. And maybe later that will in, inform us uh, more about, uh, you know, why she acts the way she does and the decision, why she makes some of the decisions she makes and, right. you know, fills us in on who she is as a person. It, so that was my initial take on, on that material. Yeah. Methodical is a good description for it. Um, I think in my letterboxd review, I said it is meditative in its pacing. And I think that's yeah. kind of a, a Villeneuve um, trope a little bit. This is just how he does movies. Uh, Sicario was that way. Um, I presume uh, prisoners and enemies had some of that. Um, I haven't seen either of those, but the back on a little bit on on the the composing um clark that you were commenting on the f- the first scene and i before we're not in spoilers yet so i'll i'll come back to this another comment i have on the first scene in a minute but the first scene took took me right into it with the music because yeah. i felt like so in sicario the music was like pounding you into the story. It felt so heavy and just grabbing you and pulling you down into it. And I felt a sense of that in, in arrival here, but I also felt uh, something that I remembered feeling when I watched interstellar and that was sort of awestruck mesmerization of what I was looking at. Um, I felt like, the music pulled me in, it grabbed me tight, and then it kind of like held on to me and just said, it's okay, watch this, look at what's happening. And I I just felt transfixed on the screen, and a lot of that was the music pulling me in right at the, right at the beginning of, of the movie. 
Another thing I really enjoyed there that they set up pretty quickly was what the language from the aliens looked like. It was a little bit different mm-hmm. for, uh, I guess, I, I don't have a point of reference from another film. Maybe y'all would know something, but it looks like ink blots or coffee ring stains. <laughs> and I don't know, just the way they produced it felt so organic. They quickly set up that when they're getting into the space vessel, that they can control gravity pretty easily. Uh-huh. It's not a big deal. And so at one point, the, the, uh, the, the team from, uh, the, from the U.S., as they're climbing through the ship, they actually shift the plane of gravity where they're standing. So they would be standing like on their side uh, relative to the ground beneath the ship. And so they make it really clear that the aliens don't have any difficulty manipulating floating ink or anything like that. Yeah. So it, uh, it just works by the time they, they present here is some form of communication we have never seen before. And the aliens seem to think that this is very intelligent and this is very natural to them. And they use it for the rest of the film. You don't see the aliens try to change their written language for human audiences so that they don't learn how to write out, you know, English speaking, you know, English language words. The human race has to come around to understand their written language. And that has a lot to do with developing the plot of the story. And uh, the the movie does a nice job of kind of uh, engaging the audience members, inner linguist too, uh, because you're sitting there and, you know, as these new symbols are appearing and as you're watching that you, you're trying to find little connections uh, in these images and wait a minute, is that thing they just put up? Was that the same thing as the first thing or is that something (laughs) different or what are we seeing? You know? Yeah. And uh, you know, obviously uh, Amy Adams gets us there faster than we would have gotten there on our own. But uh, I've found that stuff very absorbing. Yeah. And they do come to a point that they, illustrate or they highlight from their computer interfaces. Like here's a part where in this ink blot, here is a word or phrase. And we see it again in here in this other ink blot in a completely different place, but to make up a different statement from uh, one of the aliens that's communicating with them. So it's not all by, it's not just random ink blots. You're, you're seeing patterns. So it is a language and they show that on a grand scale by the end of the film that there are many patterns. So they, they did their due diligence, the designers of this particular effect, to make something that felt cohesive to sell the, the idea that this was a language. It wasn't just, you know, splotches of ink for every single ring that they were making random phrases for. Yeah. And even the, even the fact that they, they are not learning English, it's the humans that have to learn their language, gets back to the, the thinking man's sci-fi. Because if this was a typical blockbuster kind of sci-fi, you, you might ask yourself, you know, why don't they just like scan the humans and learn their language or something and then communicate quickly? But they don't do that. It's it's a it's an effort that the humans have to go through. And so kind of automatically it's like, OK, why why all this trouble? What's 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 to this? And in recent history, most films I come across, th- their stories play out from beginning to end in a matter of a weekend or in a week or just a couple of days. Mm-hmm. But this one takes place over at least a month, more like uh, five or six weeks. 
which was not a long stretch, but it was long by today's standards. And I did appreciate that. Mm-hmm. So we'll go ahead into the spoiler territory. So this is the virtual spoiler horn time. You've been warned that now we're going to talk about some of the themes and things that happen from the middle of act two onward that reveal things you might not want to hear until you've seen the film. But if you've seen the film, I'm sure by all means you'll enjoy the rest of our discussion. So we'll go ahead and just crack the question. What's the, what's going on here concerning time travel and how would you explain it to people if they're left with lingering questions come to the end of the film? <laughs> oh man, time travel. Um, gosh, so is it time travel or is it just derivative of time travel? Yeah, I don't I don't know if I'd call it time travel. I think it plays on a theory of time. There's so there's an a theory of time that says time is linear and uh, you're you're in the moment you're in. You can't hop around from one to the other. Um, but uh, pardon me, that's um, that's uh, not linear. That's um Oh, it's, it's like a image of a Ferris wheel and you're at the top running on it and you, you step on that moment in time and then it keeps revolving around and it's gone. You can't go back to it. So that's one theory of, of time. And the other is, is more like you can jump around from one to another. Um, Nonlinear. Yeah. That yeah. moment exists and it always exists. You're just kind of passing through that moment and, and after you're through it, it's behind you. It's still there, but you can go back to it, that kind of thing. So, but this play, I, it, not time travel per se. It's more, um, it's more time, time vision. Um, it's kind of foresight, you know, knowing what, what will come or what could come. And, um, uh, we'll get to this a little later on, I think, but then, kind of deciding what choices do I make now that I know this. Um, and we know that the, the heptopods, as they call them in the movie, they, they choose based on some foresight that they have to come to earth and reveal to humans their language. Because as we learn in, in 3000 years, I think it was the heptopods are going to need the help of the humans to save their race. Um, so this, this is, um, it's, it, it could be really easy to slip into just a simple time travel story uh, be, with with the sci-fi genre, but they they keep the travel aspect out of it, I think, and they make it more about uh, making decisions based on what you know about time, uh, specifically the future and what's coming towards you. Right. I, I don't think, you know, even though this is um, a film that pays uh a great deal of attention and care to all of these sort of scientific elements it introduces. I, I, I don't think in the end, um, some of them really matter all of that much, all that, because I think they're, they're being used in the service of, um, ideas that are largely emotional and philosophical rather than scientific. Mm-hmm. And, um, you know, the story's working on in, in a kind of metaphorical realm in some senses. And, uh, yeah, I, I mean, it definitely plays fair with what it gives you, but at the same time, I don't think that's the direction it wants to push you mentally. Yeah. They use the, the concepts of sci-fi as just the means to the end. Right. And it's really a well-told drama 
and one that is exploring uh, great and small themes, very personal themes of empathy, and one where it, it takes a lot of willpower to slow down and appreciate what Louise is trying to do. And there's a point where she realizes that there are things that are going to happen in her future that are going to really hurt. Mm -hmm. But why is she willing to put herself through that pain? And I I think that that is an excellent question to have. A lot of people see that Louise is very noble from her actions because she knows going forward that she has seen visions of the future that are going to cause her a great deal of pain. But there is also something to be gained by that that she thinks is for the greater good, for the betterment of, well, things that she's going to experience involving her daughter and what happens to her down the road is uh, is worth it all to go ahead and meet her daughter and to raise her and to spend all the time that she can with her, even if it means a lot of personal sacrifices and a difficult relationship with her future husband. Mm-hmm. And she figures these things out because of the revelations from, from the heptopods. Uh, I think it's only, uh, it's only Costello that makes it there to the, the last act. Right. I don't think you see yeah. Abbott again. Yeah, that's true. Abbott's the one that I feel like he's the one primarily talking to them throughout the film and, and uh, it's Costello there at the end. Yeah. So uh, I wanted to ask Eugene, what did you feel about the, what this ultimately does for for Louise's uh, character arc and what this mm-hmm. means for the the supporting plot line involving her daughter yeah um boy there's there's so much there um i think that that's a lot of what people want to to review yeah. when they see it a second time yeah absolutely you want to see so this will be what i was referring to at the end of opening scene um did you guys get, but I'll, I'll answer that question, Joe, but I'm really curious if you guys got this same sense that I did. In that first opening scene, were you guys thinking that this was very similar to Up, Pixar's film? <laughs> I didn't make I that connection, that. but I can, I can see it now that you say it. <laughs> I mean, I, I, you, That's a good one. you see her, her having the child, her raising her daughter, and then her, wow. her daughter dies, and... That's all shown like at the start. It's like wow. Okay, hit me with the heavy stuff right off the off the bat, right. won't you? With very very sparse dialogue. Yes. And, yeah. And and then it goes right into a mission that involves uh, flying right up up into the sky and spending most of your time <laughs> yeah, floating yeah. above the ground. So I was that was that kind of hit me. I was like, this is like the live action up is what I'm watching here. Um, but with her, with, uh, Louise's choice, the, I've heard a lot of people say that, um, it's, it's like the theme, the primary theme is about finding joy amidst your suffering. And I, I can see that I get that, but I, I think that's missing it. I think it's not about just finding joy because that seems like something that's done somewhat um, passively or in the moment. So you're in some sort of trial or suffering, and uh, you know you just you just have to find the bright side, that kind of thing. Okay. I think this is about actively choosing to experience the suffering, the trials, the hardships that you know are coming because you you can see it coming. You know it like you know your own past. You know, um, you know 
the, the details about exactly how much things are going to hurt, both physically and emotionally. And you still choose, though, you still choose that path because there's love there. And love overpowers any measure of hardships and suffering. And that's a major statement that I think this movie is making. Um, and that has implications on all kinds of other areas uh, because it's not just about finding the good in something you're going through. It's about choosing to go through that terrible thing, knowing that you're going to experience all these horrible feelings again. And, and other people are too. I mean, she's making this choice if it is a choice and we can get into that too. She's making this choice, not just for herself, but for her husband for her future daughter, for other family members, her mother. She, she, she was talking to her mother on the phone or in the movie. Her mother's going to experience the loss of her granddaughter. Mm-hmm. She's making the choice for all kinds of other people, but she does it because she knows there's love there. And that's what she wants to hold on to, and that's why she moves forward on that path. And I think that's, that's such a deep and meaningful statement that it makes. And, and the way that Amy Adams' character wrestled with that in, the, in those final 10 or 20 minutes I thought was great and it and the way that she portrayed it is what made me feel like this was a choice that she was actively making and not just something that she realized was going to happen and it's like fatalistically uh she can't do anything about it. I felt like the 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 way she looked at Ian and and things that were coming to her mind, I felt like this was a choice that she was she was willfully making to go through this suffering. I definitely agree with that. And I, I think that, um, you know, the, I think making the decision to love somebody to really, truly kind of open your heart and, and love someone is a decision that comes with a, a lot of risk. Yeah, um, yeah. you're opening yourself up to all kinds of, uh, heartbreak and pain and possibly even, uh, you know, consequences that can hurt a lot, but you're right. Uh, you know, I think part of what the movie's getting at is that, uh, you know, suffering and love are inextricable and, um, you know, the importance of coming to an acceptance of that. Mm-hmm. And, uh, I, I think that, you know, the, the, the easier path is there and she could have taken it, which is, you know, you just focus on academics and writing your book and don't deal with any of this stuff and right. nobody gets hurt and everything is fine. But, um, you know, th- there's there's an emptiness there um, in that safer route. And I think she recognizes that. I, I don't really have anything to add to that because it, it is a great exploration and not one that draws hard-lined conclusions. There isn't that definitive moment where the protagonist, you know, stands proudly over top of the body of the antagonist and makes a, you know, declaration of their independence or right. something. Um, and which is very refreshing again, that it, it just leaves a lot of not open-ended questions, but it leaves a lot of opportunity to review because we all experience this. I think this is a very, um, sort of natural look at the the paradox between love and the pain that we experience and the risk that we experience as uh, Clark you pointed out that we may encounter because of how we expose ourselves to things that we well I mean really Louise doesn't have a uh, a total 
vision of the future. She, right. you know, she just has highlights and she realizes like you, you are going to be married to this person. You are going to have this daughter and she is going to mean a lot to you. You're going to be responsible for her. You're going to see the, the good and the bad parts. Um, and I, I think that she, like all humans would, would really wrestle with that decision, but knowing about the opportunity it affords as you expl- expressed gene mm-hmm. to, to love someone th- that that is incredibly fulfilling yeah. and that deeply matters to us on a human level. So uh, we, we're ready to wrap it up. Gene, would you give this a thumbs up, thumbs down? Any last comments? Oh, major thumbs up. Uh, this is the only five star that I've given so far this year. This is my favorite move of the year so far. Uh, we've got a lot coming up in December, which I'm super pumped for. But right now, this is this is uh, top of the list for me. And have you written a, any reviews or articles pertaining to Arrival that we can add to the show notes? Not me personally. I've written a short, like two paragraph uh, thing on Letterboxd, which I'm on. And if you guys are on Letterboxd, look me up. Um, you know, I just got on it earlier this week. I I had an account a while ago, and I've lost it, but. <laughs> I want to get back into it again. Yeah. I do like the improvements to how it works. It works a lot better than the last time I checked. And they've got the uh, app now for your phone. So no excuse not to hear that Blaine Grimes, no excuse. <laughs> <laughs> uh, but there is a, uh, a full review from Alexis Johnson up on real world theology. Uh, check that out. Um, uh, yeah, no, I haven't written any, anything full or anything. This is right here with you guys. This is my written review. And Clark, what do you think? Uh, it's a superb movie. Um, definitely one of the best films I've seen this year and, uh, yeah, a a great piece of science fiction and, um, an emotionally overwhelming piece of cinema. Um, uh, highly recommended. Absolutely. And have you written about it for three, uh, what is it? 365 movie guy. I have not written about it for 365 movie guy yet because I am writing about it for a magazine that, uh, will not be coming out for a few weeks. So, um, it's going to them, but, um, you can find other reviews written by me over at 365 movieguy.com. Uh, I used to write a review every single day over there, uh, but then life got insanely busy and that <laughs> has become uh, too hard to do. So I write less frequently, but uh, there's stuff over there. I just wrote a review yesterday. In fact, uh, another great movie that just came out called Moonlight. Um, there's a review up there of that, but uh, yeah, all kinds of stuff. I really enjoyed Arrival. I don't intend to see it again here in theaters, but I'm sure I'll catch it when it comes out early next year. It'll be refreshing to space out the viewings. Um, a lot going on between now and the end of the year. we got other movies to check out. I still want to see the uh, Fantastic Beasts uh, over mm-hmm. the Thanksgiving holidays. And I, I don't know. I may end up seeing that twice. Who knows? But uh, yeah, I've got a lot of work to do between now and the end of the year. So I'm going to be careful about which films I, I go to see twice, but um, a lot of things to see at home as well. So good times for entertainment. And I, I know that we all have a lot to see. So if you haven't checked out Arrival, I think that you should probably see this film in theaters. Oh yeah, It's been worth it for me and everyone else that I have talked to. If you are, are patient enough, you will probably find this film especially fulfilling and uh, just, you know, 
uh, soak it in for all it's worth the first time so that if uh, you're busy like I am, maybe maybe you can get the first and second viewings worth the first go round. I, um, you can catch me on Twitter. I don't recommend that you look me up on Letterboxd just yet, but <laughs> Gene, if I can find your profile on Letterboxd, I'll add your link to the show notes. Very well. And, uh, and I'm available on Twitter. My handle is JCS Darnell. Uh, Gene, where can people find you if they wanted to see the rest of the stuff you're doing? I'm on Twitter as well, uh, at Wizard of Gauze. That's Wizard with no A. Uh, you can find me on Letterboxd, like I said, and I... Uh, write reviews and occasionally on podcast on realworldtheology.com. That's real with two L's. And um, I am also on a um, Christian apologetics and worldview podcast on clearlens.org. Mm, Clark, where can people catch you? Uh, you can follow me on Twitter. I am at 365movieguy. Um and I also write for a website called dvdverdict.com here and there. Um, I write some DVD and Blu-ray reviews for them. And uh, you can, if you live in the South Metro Atlanta area, uh, you can hear me on uh, WHIE AM 1320 doing stuff on the radio and sometimes movie-related stuff, but uh, lots of different things. So, yeah, that's where I'm at. Thank you very much, guys. It's been great to have you back, Gene and Clark. Uh, thank you for joining us for Retake. I know that we'll catch you again later sometime soon. All right. And uh, so many good films to explore. We'll have to talk about some of the films we even talked about a movie bite again and uh, see if there's any other films that we already covered that you'd like to revisit. <laughs> Maybe there's something in there. So I want to say happy Thanksgiving to everyone that is listening to Retake Episode 11. I hope that you've enjoyed it. You can find more episodes, more reviews at nightowl.fm slash retake. And this episode is available there. It's nightowl.fm slash retake slash 11. And if you want to catch up with um, the other special guests and hosts of the show, there's details on their profiles on the website. So my thanks again for joining us on Retake. Have a happy Thanksgiving, everyone. Thank you.